0: This is Famous and Gravy, Life Lessons from Dead Celebrities. Now for the opening quiz to reveal today's Dead Celebrity.
1: This person died in 2020, age 86. After his father died and his mother remarried, he was sent to military school. He later graduated from Virginia Military Institute and served in the Army, playing on its baseball team. He once said, I always wanted to be a baseball player.
2: I feel like it's like an ex-president or something, but Kevin Costner's not dead, is he?
1: It's not Kevin Costner. Over the years, he became a favorite among real-life talk show hosts, making at least 50 guest appearances in sketches on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. He also did nine on Jimmy Kimmel Live.
3: Oh my gosh. I don't really watch those shows anymore.
1: He made an art of playing characters who, as the New Yorker once noted, are, quote, gloriously out of their depth.
2: Like, Kramer just comes to mind immediately, but I think
1: he's still alive. Michael Richards is still with us. He appeared in more than 700 films and television movies and episodes over a half century. His films include Fun with Dick and Jane, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, And Harold and Kumar go to White Castle.
2: The problem with that is, there's like so many cameos in those movies.
1: He was nominated for Emmys for his role on Modern Family and Everybody Loves Raymond, and was a frequent collaborator with director Christopher Guest.
2: Fred Willard! That's it.
1: Today's dead celebrity is Fred
3: Willard. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Fred Willard. Have here, Fred. Thank you. No, no wonder Elvis was such a star with music like that behind him. Boy, oh. It's okay to be Perfectly silly on this show. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm being, I'm being no. a, I just feel like being <laughs> silly. You know, in improvising, they teach you, they say, uh, don't go for jokes. Just listen to your partner, which I try to do, but occasionally, like um, Jane Lynch plays my partner, the co host, and she's, you know, we have a story coming up on blind prostitutes coming up next. And I said, you know what they say about blind prostitutes? You really have to hand it to them. <laughs> and, uh...
1: Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. My name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we believe that the best years might lie ahead. So we choose a celebrity who died in the last 10 years and review their quality of life. We go through a series of categories in order to extract wisdom and inspiration. And then we ultimately answer the question, would I want that life? Today, Fred Willard died 2020, age 86. So before we begin, today we are lucky to be joined by Saul Austerlitz. Saul, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Saul just published a book called Kind of a Big Deal, How Anchorman Stayed Classy and Became the Most Iconic Comedy of the 21st Century, I've read the book. It's a total delight. I had uh, this is a little bit embarrassing. I had forgotten Fred Willard was it, was an anchorman. What? But then when I went back and watched the clips, it's like, oh, of course he was at Harkin, the station manager. And there is something about his comedy that I think really informs that whole movie and Will Ferrell's comedy. You have a nice day, sir. Goodbye.
3: I could come back later, Mr. Harkin. Oh, no, no, no. It's just uh, parents' stuff. It, it seems that our youngest, Chris, was on something called acid and was firing a bow and arrow into a crowd. Mm. You know how kids are. I'm
1: curious what you think, you know, Fred Willard's contribution is to Anchorman. You know, he's more than a part. How would you frame it? I think
4: that your initial mistake makes sense to me because he exists a little bit at the side of the movie. Um, we're always kind of seeing him doing his thing by himself. And in fact, in terms of the way the film was made, and especially in terms of how it was edited, the Fred Willard sequences were treated as as sort of uh, stops or placeholders or, or sort of places where they knew they could insert a joke or a pause for as long as they wanted. And so the editor, Brent White, talked about the Fred Willard moments as these things that he was lucky to have that he could basically put anywhere in the film because they didn't really have anything to do with anything else. But yeah, in terms of his being an inspiration for the film or for Will Ferrell, yeah, I look at the ways in which Adam McKay in particular, the director and co-writer of the film, talked to the actors after he cast the film and told them that this was going to be a movie that would be made really differently from what their expectations of a movie might be, that it was going to be much more about improvisation. And so Someone like Fred Willard, who'd already done so much improvisation, especially with the Christopher Guest films, I think was in a a kind of privileged place knowing already exactly how to do this kind of work.
1: Yeah. One of the things I really liked about your answer, Saul, is that that sort of, um, I don't know, sort of Swiss army knife aspect of Fred Willard, like he could really be slot in anywhere, that feels like a real common theme throughout his career. So it makes a lot of sense that he was sort of used in that way, in Anchorman. Out of curiosity, why did you want to write the book in the first place? Tell me a little bit more about uh, Kind of a Big Deal. Great title, by the way.
4: Oh, thanks. Yeah, so I teach uh, a class on the history of comedy at NYU, and Since I started the class, I usually show Anchorman to my students the first week of class, and it's a little bit of a provocation, uh, a little bit of you know, prodding the students to think about what might otherwise appear to be kind of an ordinary comedy that they wouldn't think twice about, and getting them to watch it with different eyes and think about all the different themes and styles and, and methods of critical approach that they might have in terms of writing about the movie, whether it's writing about you know, the relationship between the movie and Saturday Night Live, whether it's writing about the improvisational style, whether it's writing about the movie's themes, about feminism, about television news, you know, and so on and so forth. But, you know, it took me years of teaching this to students to kind of have my own teacher teach thyself moment where I said, wait, I want to write about this movie. I have a lot to say about this movie. And thinking about how much people had connected with Anchorman, how much people love that movie, and the ways in which it had really stuck around in a way that, that you know many other films of its era hadn't, really got me interested in wanting to tell the story of how it got made and how it became the kind of iconic movie that it did.
3: What in the hell's diversity? <clears throat> well, I, I could be wrong, but I believe uh, diversity is an old, old wooden ship that was used during the Civil War era. Ron, I would be surprised if the affiliates were concerned about the lack of an old, old wooden ship, but nice try. Uh, diversity means the times are changing. And with that in mind, Ron, are you paying attention? Nope.
1: All right, let's do this. Category 1, grading the first line of their obituary. Fred Willard. The Emmy Award-nominated comic actor best known for his scene-stealing roles in Christopher Guest's improvised ensemble film comedies like Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman and on sitcoms like Modern Family and Everybody Loves Raymond, died on Friday at his home in Los Angeles. He was 86. They crammed a lot in. They got four... Di- yeah, they did. They it's did. It's definitely like mention, a Fred Willard fast talker. They didn't kind of mention sentence. Anchorman, which is a little d- bit disappointing, given that we dragged Saul here for uh, this <laughs> conversation. But, but I got to say, I do kind of like it. So sometimes I balk at... Referencing other people and other people's works in the first line of the obituary, there's something about me that feels like we shouldn't use anybody else's name. But Christopher Guest's movies occupy such a specific and unique space in sort of film comedy that I, I'm, you know, you kind of ha- almost have to use his name here. And then I like that they got in the, t- the more recent TV shows, Modern Family and Everybody Loves Raymond. As we'll get to in this conversation, there is no shortage of other things we might have referenced that Fred Willard happened to be in. But in terms of like what you remember him for, I do feel like this is a pretty good, you know, random sampling of his most iconic appearances in pop culture. So let's focus on that for a second, the
0: omissions. So um, I would have cast a vote for this as Spinal Tap. Yeah, it's such a small part, though. But it's such a good one. And it's his first, like, ki- kind of breakout role.
3: Ah, the, oh, Lieutenant uh, Hoekstrad. Hoekstrad, you are yes. Spinal Tarp? I'm, I'm Janine Petterford, this is Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap, my yeah. mistake. I'm, I'm uh, Lieutenant Bob Hoekstrat, welcome to Lindbergh Air Force Base. And may I start by saying how thrilled we are to have you here. We are such fans of your music and all of your records. That's right. I'm not speaking of yours personally, but the whole genre the rock and roll and so many yeah. of the exciting yeah. things that are happening in music genre. today.
0: They chose Waiting for Guffman, yeah. I think, because they had to mention Best in Show, right? Because that's that's the true scene stealer of all of them. Yes. But the This is Spinal Tap role is so, so good and really started his film comedy trajectory.
1: I agree with that last statement, most importantly. He did other things before, and we'll get into it. But there is something that sets him on a new and different course, starting with Spinal Tap. So... I don't know. I'm I'm ready to ask Saul's
4: opinion on this. Saul, how did you feel about the first line of the obituary? What, What leapt out to you? I felt like it was pretty solid. I'm appreciative that they mentioned such a wide variety of his work because Fred Willard seems to me to be at his best as a kind of supporting player in the best possible way. The guy who jumps in in a movie where you maybe didn't even remember he was there or shows up as a guest star in a show where you're not expecting him and ends up stealing all the scenes. And that's really... I think, what people love Fred Willard the most for, right? He wasn't the star of the movie. He wasn't the guy with the big name on the poster, but instead was the person who would just kind of sneak in and run away with the movie.
1: Y'all both have used the phrase scene-stealing, which does appear here and is maybe the strongest bit of language in the first line of the obituary, best known for his scene-stealing roles. They had to get that in there because he is kind of a consummate scene-stealer in a way. He comes on and you just like you know, all of a sudden, it's a Fred Willard scene. You know what I mean?
4: And he's a secret weapon, right? Filmmakers brought him in because they knew that he was that that professional who would just do eg- exactly the right scene in exactly the right way, and they wouldn't have to worry about him at all.
3: Now she's having the dogs... Why do they have him run away from him and then back up? What's the point of that? What are they looking for? They're looking for the gait and movement of the uh-huh. dog, and it's very important to see this from all angles. So uh, Edie will be checking out this in particular. Yeah. Good way to judge a woman. Have her run away from me and then run back. You know, those birds on Connaby Street. <laughs> yes. I'm used to seeing them run away from me more often than <laughs> run towards me. Yeah.
1: I kind of feel like the word improviser or improv needs to be in here somewhere. Well, that Emmy award winning was right off the bat, oh, which is true. Oh, I screwed up. I screwed up. What? The word improvised is in here. Oh, my effing F. My <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Christopher Guest improvised ensemble film. So he did not. They did not do it. Okay. Damn it. I was looking for holes to poke. And I guess I, that, that, that You just that, created your own hole. And I did. Oh, how embarrassing. Well, I'm glad I caught it anyway. What were you going to so say? I, um,
0: I think I'm just going to create you instead of the obituary. Okay. That's fine.
1: Um, I mean, isn't that kind of what we're doing anyway?
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, the fact that Emmy award winning was right off the bat, I understand because you got to you got to start with something hallmark typically, but that was so secondary and so late in his career. It's just it's an interesting placement.
4: I think it's also apropos just because I think of Fred Willard as kind of a career late bloomer, right? He's someone totally. That may, yeah, we become much more familiar with him when he's already you know close to senior citizen age. Yeah, uh, And there's something wonderful about that. You know, I think about the ways in which Hollywood in particular kind of valorizes youth. Mm-hmm. And Fred Willard's career is kind of the opposite of that, that he's someone who really comes into his own much, much later in his career. I'm not sure that he would have necessarily wanted it that way if he had his druthers, but it's lovely to see somebody who kind of becomes a big success much, much later in life.
1: Amen. I think that's going to become a big part of what we're going to talk about for the rest of the show. So much so, should they have gotten that idea in here somewhere? Like some sort of, you know, professional who spanned many decades or some other way of capturing what you just said, Saul. Because I think the more I looked at his story, the more that is 100% true. This guy Mm. was like sort of a little bit around and then always around, but really didn't you know come into full blossom until his 30s, 40s, or 50s. I mean, it's really a, a sort of fourth quarter run he has.
0: Yeah, I mean, Spinal Tap, he was 50 already.
1: Yeah, amazing. All right, I feel like I'm ready to grade this thing. Amit?
0: Uh, so two deductions for me. One, I, I do want Spinal Tap in there. I think mentioning both Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show is a little redundant. Didn't have to do that. And secondly, I wanted some nod to the style. To either the uh, the dryness, the straight man, the self unaware. So uh, minus two, one and a half points for each. So I'm giving a seven.
1: Okay, wow. You're the, but the you rest know, was
0: solid. The rest was solid. I mean, that's coming is, down from a ten. Normally, I have to build, you know, zero up, ground up accounting.
1: I was going to go eight, largely for the same reason. I would have liked a little bit of the late bloomer narrative in here somehow. I don't know how you do that, but I would have liked that idea introduced. I also do think your point about style and his sort of unique flavor of comedy. Uh, I'm docking it only two points. I'm in a slightly more generous mood than you are, Amit. I'm giving it an eight. Okay. Saul, do you have your score?
4: Yeah, I'm going to agree with you and also go with an eight. I'm going to be petty and take a point off for not including Anchorman just because I feel like it. There you go. And I do, I do think that that some discussion of the style would have been good, but on the whole, I think this does a pretty good job of kind of capturing the scope of Fred Willard's life and his career.
1: Excellent. Eight, eight, and seven. Next category, category two, five things I love about you. Here we work together to come up with five things we love about this person, five reasons we want to be talking about them in the first place. Saul, before you leave us, would you like to contribute a thing you love about Fred Willard?
4: Yeah, I I was thinking about this, and I think the thing that I admire about Fred Willard his characters always have a willingness to be game. There's always odd things going on around him and he's always willing to play along. You know, he's no. witnessing the foibles of others, whether it's his son who is, you know, shooting people with bows and arrows while on LSD in Anchorman or all the oddball characters in the Christopher guest films. And he's always taking in what they're doing with relative equanimity. He never, you know, gets so bent out of shape. And it's obviously extremely funny in context and also just kind of an admirable life skill.
1: I it's a very improv yes and thing, right? You you take it in stride. You sort of acknowledge whatever is happening around with you. I like the word equanimity there. Too. I love that.
0: Yeah, to describe his demeanor. So rare in comedy too.
1: That's perfect.
4: Yeah, you know he stays so calm. He's rarely the guy who's going over the top. I mean, that's more right. Will Ferrell's role to do the the shouting and the red faced work, but. I love Fred Willard for always being the person who's sort of like the the calm at the eye of the storm. He's our comedic Buddha. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: uh, Saul, um, you know, once again, the, the book is called uh, Kind of a Big uh, Deal. Uh, it's available now. It is a total t- delight to read. Anybody who's a fan of Will Ferrell or Anchorman or Adam McKay or <laughs> comedy history in general, I highly recommend reading it.
0: Yeah, we'll link to it and Saul's other books in the show notes as well.
1: That's right. Saul Austerlis, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you making the time today.
4: Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun.
1: All right. uh, Do you want to take thing number two? Would you like me to? Why don't you go? I'm just going to go for the upward elevator and trajectory, the late bloomer thing. Actually, the words I wrote for my thing number two were hope and faith. You know, he really didn't hit until... I don't know. I mean, there's this thing called Fernwood Tonight with Martin Mull in 1977, which is by some sources cited as like the first important Fred Willard thing he did, even though he had been on The Tonight Show and part of Comedy Troops before that. He was in Second City. He was even on the Smothers Brothers back when Steve Martin was working there. But he really didn't like begin to get noticed until Fernwood tonight, which most people don't know anything about. He's 44 years old when that hits. He is in his 50s when Spinal Tap comes out. Like, man, you and I, you know, I had a birthday not too long ago. I am in my mid-40s. Man, do I need these examples of people who had a passion, felt a calling, chipped away at it, and tried to like zero out expectations and just make a living. And the reason I used hope and faith is that I got to believe that's possible for me, <laughs> and, yeah. and you, and anybody else in their mid-40s who wants to believe I still might make it in some fundamental sense. God almighty, I love that about Fred Willard. Didn't you come away from the research sort of feeling the same way?
0: Totally, totally inspirational that the his trajectory really started much, much later than most people's.
1: And the thing is, it's not even one breakout. It's more just that he like becomes an increasingly well-known and trustworthy you know, participant and commodity in a comedy troupe. You know what I mean? Like he, he, he really like, it's a slow accumulation of a reputation that, that I just love and admire and desire.
0: Yeah. So I can, I'll take number three, which I think is actually a really great build off to that. I wrote Can't Stop, Won't Stop. And that's not just about the persistence and, you know, hitting film breakthrough in his 50s, but he worked all up until the end. I mean, literally, he filmed the Steve Carell Space Force right before he passed. And he did something notable every single year of his career. You look through his IMDb,
1: and what did you say in, in the quiz? Something like 700? 700. 700 across. It's hard to count it up because there's recurring roles on TV. It's at yeah. least 300 entries. It's yeah, IMDb,
0: I think, I had, had 318 listings with several more multiple. Right. right. But yeah, the man kept working. And I think what's unique about that And what's cool about that is I think you can only do that with his level of participation. This kind of slot in anywhere type of role that he had and almost never being a leading man. I do have some counter example stories of that later, but this just sort of slow burn all the way until the end, not this mountain that you climb and then drop off in retirement. You know, there's different styles and different ways to do this, but I kind of really like this Fred Willard lifestyle. Little gigs here and there and little parts, and even in his final several years, maybe just showing up on Modern Family a a time or two there or on Jimmy Kimmel every couple of months. I think it's excellent, this steady flow until the end.
1: Yeah. I suspect you have a hot take. So why don't you do number four, too? Okay. uh, It's going to be a twist.
0: Firsts, so the two... Favorites of mine, uh, he was the first gay
1: wedding on television. Which was on Roseanne yeah, where he so, married Martin Mole. Correct.
0: So he played uh one half of a gay couple on Roseanne and they got married on TV and beat uh Friends, I think by one or two years as the first gay wedding on TV. Nineteen ninety four, uh, yeah. Yeah. And secondly, um he had the first human role in a Pixar movie. I saw uh, that. And yeah. Wally.
3: Okay, I'm giving override. Uh, directive A113, go to full autopilot, take control of everything, and do not return to Earth. Repeat, do not return to Earth. Let's get the heck out of
0: here. So I love these just kind of small little firsts that he had. And the life lesson, I think, from this is that everybody is first to something. You can take this, you know, a a really spiritual look at it and say, you know, I'm the first person in this room at this time, at this moment. But not even that, like you are the first person to do something almost always. And anybody can look back at their life and they are the first person to do something that is reasonably significant. And I think Fred Willard's examples of these tiny little things that we're talking about, I think are awesome. Because it's not first-line stuff, but it's still significant being a first.
1: Uh, All right, maybe I'll go with... uh, Maybe I will take five. Unless you have something else you want to burn. I'm happy. I'm in a generous mood. If you wanted to do one more thing you love, I'm good with it.
0: No, I'll hear it. I'll one-up you uh, in in an informal way if necessary. I love the
1: competitive nature of (laughs) this. Maybe we've already spoken to this, but Tone Setter is what I have. He's somebody who whenever he shows up on your screen, like the energy he brings and the tone he sets has this element that the quote I read that I loved the most was a sublime talent for inhabiting the genial American blowhard. He is genial and he is a kind of like, you know, white American blowhard in the Best possible way. I mean, he's got almost an element of dad humor that's occasionally a little bit raunchier, you know, and like anytime, anytime he steps onto the screen, I'm like, oh, I smile immediately, you know, insert him into this movie. And already you've elevated the whole thing and the the sort of comedic atmosphere and the comedic potential of a given script or a given moment uh, in a film. Before he even opens his mouth. Exactly, exactly. Like, don't you want that energy? Don't you want to be like somebody walks in the room and they're like, Ah, oh, you don't even fucking do anything and they just smile at you. Yeah, I think that this is part of his secret weapon as a scene stealer is that he's not trying to dominate, but by surrendering, this is the whole counterintuitive thing by surrendering to the moment, he does steal the scene. yeah, you're talking about
0: it's not charisma. I think we gotta we gotta workshop this because it's something different. It's a quality that, uh, it's an elevating quality, but it's completely based on presence. But that presence is not just based on what you bring into the room. It's the accumulation of who you are. You know, it's what to expect. It's it's all of your behavior that accumulates that you know that when you enter into a scene, people are just going to start smiling and are ready to laugh.
1: That predisposition to make you want to laugh does seem to come from the inside out. He's not doing a whole hell of a lot, but the stripped down, sort of, I don't know, bare bones version of whatever he is doing, like has you on your seat's edge, like waiting to laugh.
0: Yeah, and I think it's also what Saul referred to. It's the equanimity that he brings to each role, and his his commitment to the purity of the form. You know, he talked about like he he doesn't cuss and rolls because he thinks it's a shortcut, and he doesn't overact. Like he never acts in a comedic way. He thinks that the delivery is in the the non delivery. And I think all of those three things add up to this anticipatory feeling of you smiling already when he walks in.
1: Okay, let's recap. So number one, Saul said uh, equanimity, essentially. Uh, Number two, I said hope and faith. I was really in reference to the upward trajectory of his career. Number three, you said... Can't stop, won't stop. Number four... First, first person. First, first person, very Neil Armstrong. Like that way. And number five, I said tone center. Boy, that's a good list. Okay, Uh, let's take a break.
2: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them.
1: Okay, Category 3. Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people take a portal into John Malkovich's mind and they can have a front row seat to his experiences. My Malkovich is 2010. I kind of wanted to rip the Band-Aid off this one. So for my Malkovich, I chose an uncomfortable moment. Do you know about his little mini scandal in 2010? Yes. And uh, how would you describe it? Pee Wee Herman-like? Yeah, Pee Wee Herman-like. I mean, wow,
0: what a what a very contemporary reference, given that we Yeah, just no, lost Paul Pee-wee. Rubens. Yeah. Um But yeah. Well, Pee Wee Herman-like, but but without the evidence.
1: Right. So he was arrested for uh exposure in a public theater. It sounds like he was in a port theater and very likely beaten off.
0: You're uh, I wanna I wanna talk about this. This probably okay. this was never proven. He was just in a pornographic theater during a raid. Where they typically look for people that um, are either doing that, performing lewd acts, or are with prostitutes. But and I thought he had been he exposed. Was, mm, no, I don't think so. I don't think they caught that. Okay, but he, yeah, he, he, either way, he was he was arrested for being present. He wasn't caught in any act.
1: Yeah. Okay. He, he was, he was just arrested, arrested for lewd conduct, and he was fired from a gig he had at the time on PBS. Yes. I want to zone in not on his arrest. He ended up not being charged, but a hugely embarrassing moment. He, at one point after this begins to come out, sends out a tweet. And this was his effort at damage control. And the tweet reads, wait till you hear my version, much more PG and my review, lousy film. But (laughs) theater would make a terrific racquetball court. Full story to follow. Anytime he answered this in public, he was like, oh, God, it's embarrassing, you know.
3: Yes. Uh, it is. It's very embarrassing. It's embarrassing as hell, you know. But let me say this. Yeah. Nothing happened. Yes. I did nothing wrong. Everything's being sorted out as we speak. But I, I, I try to laugh it off. Uh, but my, my summary of the whole evening was it's an interesting theater, a boring movie, and a great place to take a nap.
1: The moment I am choosing for my Malkovich is the moment he decides to send this tweet. How you move into damage control with something so embarrassing, whatever happened, and that he decides to construct this tweet and then hit send and say, this is how I'm going to respond to it. And I have got to try and make some joke about this. I got to say, terrific racquetball court. What do you think he's talking about there? I have no idea. I don't get the joke. Me neither. It's awkward, right? It's sort of bad improv in a way. But I am wondering what's going through his mind with, oh, God, I've just put in decades and decades of hard work in Hollywood. I've built myself a pretty good reputation. PBS just fired me. I've got to say something. I guess I'll go to Twitter and and make this little (laughs) joke. I want to know what it's like to have to humble yourself and come up with some kind of version of things you know, this late in life, because this is, what, 10 years before he dies. So as you said, he's a 77-year-old man. I also wanted to bring up this Malkovich because I wanted to, I don't know, get this moment out of the way. I I think there's so much to enjoy about Fred Willard, and I am more than happy to forgive this incident, but I also felt like we needed to talk about it early on. That is my Malkovich.
0: Okay. So for mine, we're going to fast forward just four years. So first line in the obituary, we talked about Emmy winning. Do you know what that Emmy was? I think one was for Modern Family. I don't remember the other one. There was on a head. Daytime Emmy for his performance on The Bold and the Beautiful. No. Yes. yes? So in I 2014... Fred Willard accepted a role to be on not just a soap opera, but the quintessential soap opera. He was on seven episodes of The Bold and the Beautiful, playing sort of the zany brother of one of the characters. Amazing. Uh, I want to be there for the traveling experience of being on all these comedy sets, you know, on the Carson stage in all these movies. And then you're on a soap opera set. For a guy like Fred Willard, especially at this age, at like 81, something, 80, 81. I mean, this is like traveling to Antarctica. And (laughs) I want to see what it's like (laughs) to be on this set, uh, primarily from from his eyes, but even from the eyes of the cast. Um, I just love it. And I would just love to see how he perceived it compared to everything else that he did. And you talk about, you know, doing different things in your career. And here's a guy that was an actor, a comedic actor, pretty much the entire time. But this is about as much as you can do as as like Michael Jordan going to play baseball. You know, it's like trying something else.
1: (laughs) That's a good one. Ahmed. I wonder what that feels like to try something very new and very different and very kind of tacked on at the end, because at this point, he's got to know anything he's doing in his 80s is a little bit like this is all icing on the cake at this point. He's lucky to be working. You know? Yeah. Okay. Category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? All right. This is a nice one. One marriage, Mary Lovell in 1968. Fred is about 35-ish, if I did my math right. She died in 2018, just two years before he died. They were married about 50 years, one daughter, one grandson. Everything looks to be, like, love and supporting. Like, she was out there championing his career. I think that there was even uh, a couple times when she might have uh, been involved in helping uh, further his career. I didn't find a whole hell of a lot past that. It looked pretty cut and dry. It also suited my impression of Fred Willard very well. He does The fact that he's a military guy, that he, like, was in the Army and then at the Virginia Military Institute, that... Added up to me. He, he felt like somebody, you know, who's got the haircut and the uniform, should he want to have it. That kind of entertainer and performer of that generation. You know yes, what I mean? Totally. There was nothing surprising in here for me. Did you find anything or have any uh, different reactions? Uh, there was a pretty significant age differential. Yeah, I did notice that. I think there,
0: she was 15 or 16 years younger, but um, it seemed like it worked. I think you you hit on the word supportive, and that came up over and over again in all of these interviews with him. And what I learned about her is that she was not just supportive for him. She was kind of, uh, Leonard Malton called her the den mother of the comedy community. So she would throw all these parties oh, at wow. their house, and she would say the people that were there, you'd have, you know, Jimmy Kimmel, Jeff Ross, Weird Al Yankovic. And that she was kind of this like this rock. She was a very decisive woman and a very encouraging woman. And that these comedy friends of his, Jimmy Kimmel and um, Norm Macdonald, would actually like call her for advice. And so she seems. I mean, we we don't know much about her. Meaning, we don't have her her voice on tape very much. But she seems like an incredible woman and an incredible partner. I see greatness in this marriage.
1: That's what I saw too. I and mean, It feels like it's been a while since we've had somebody whose marriage was so like simple and desirable. And I was like, oh, this is just heartwarming. I don't know, man. Not a lot to say other than high marks well done by what we can tell. And who knows the inner complexities of it, but looks pretty damn good to me and very desirable. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on. Category five, net worth. Five million. Five million. Felt a little low to me.
0: It and maybe I think just given I mean, given the vast catalog of his yeah. work, it did feel a little bit low.
1: Yeah. I was a little I mean, it's not a bad number. That's that's a very blue collar kind of Hollywood number, right? Blue, Five yeah, million. blue million. collar I mean, for
0: Hollywood, yes.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously that's a great number by any measure. You you kind of want somebody who was so prolific to have cashed out a little bit more. Um yeah, I don't know. I wanted a higher number only because the sheer volume of things he's in felt like it was worthy of a higher number. But maybe after thinking about it, it's not necessarily the wrong number. You know, no, what I mean? it's the
0: duration. I think it speaks to the can't stop, won't stop as he just kept taking. He just kept working. And some of this, I don't think like all these Jimmy Kimmel appearances were paid. Yeah. He just kept doing stuff. Yeah, um, and I think the roles that he did in these Christopher Guest movies, these aren't things that you're on set for months.
1: No, and those are not big movies either. I mean, it's not like those are blockbusters; they don't have huge returns. And he was not like you know he wasn't in the top
0: few billing for Anchorman. So right. these like even these mega blockbusters, it's not he's getting royalties, but he's not getting the top of the heap Will Ferrell royalties.
1: Yeah, no, I mean he he's a he's a good. He's a good middle ground for what it means to be a working actor in Hollywood, right? He's, he's almost the, the definite, especially in comedies. It's hard to come up with somebody who's more just like steady stream than him. Yeah. Still a little disappointed, though, to see five. I was, I was hoping for 10. I was hoping for at least 10. I was too. Yeah. All right, category six, Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Halls of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons, as well as impersonations. So I bet you saw this. He hosted SNL. He did 1978. 1978. Did you see who he replaced? Yeah, Muhammad Ali. Fred Willard stepping in for Muhammad Ali, who had to cancel.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, Fred Willard! One died with you. Other things that we too could plan my dreams come true. It's only me! <laughs> it's only me! Well, I bet you were thinking, gee, what an opening act, huh?
1: Hosted SNL, that does say something. Like, it, what's funny is that I think that actually says more about SNL than about Fred Willard. SNL in 1978, you know what I mean? But it's significant because, I mean, George Carlin hosted early on, Billy Crystal hosted early on. Like, people who are very famous had hosted at that point. And even though I'm sure Fred Willard was a great slot-in on what Saturday Night Live was in 1978, you know, it's still a little surprising to see him having had hosted. Musical guest Devo by the way, on the episode. That's right. I saw that as well. So that's SNL. Uh, Simpsons, he did a voice on season 10, episode 12, another Famous and Gravy tie-in, the same episode that John Madden was on, John Madden episode 42 of Famous and Gravy. Fred uh, voiced somebody named Wally Kogan. And then there is no Arsenio Hall appearance and no Hollywood star. So hosted SNL voiced somebody, but not himself on The Simpsons. No Arsenio, no Hollywood star. Hard to know how to add it all up. How? But the question is, how famous is Fred Willard? Uh, I don't even know how to answer it. But he's got the name recognition.
0: People know the name. There is
1: name recognition somehow, right? And I can't think of anybody else who has the kind of name recognition he has without having a single character associated with him that he has. I mean, there's four different things mentioned in the first line of the obituary, and we talked about two others which could have been mentioned, none of which do you readily remember the character's name. He somehow has this name recognition because he's such a known quantity. It's such a unique example of sort of earned reputation across multiple projects and properties. Um, he's kind of famous in a way, but he's also not all that famous. So nowhere
0: near as rich as his contemporaries.
1: Right. Yeah. Kind of funny. Like we know him. We're not exactly sure why, except we can point to 10 different things that we kind of sort of remember him from,
0: you know, these like scene stealing things. And I think that's why that's why we know him because he is a scene stealer. I think yes. there's a lot of people that have the exact same amount of screen time as Fred Willard, but they don't have as memorable as an, of an appearance that you can't see the face and associate it with a name. I mean, in one way, I think it's kind of beautiful. You know, it speaks to this just sort of steady stream along the whole ride. I mean, I, a lot of the conclusions that we've come to through the episodes that fame doesn't look very desirable. However, his lifestyle in the corner he occupied looks
1: pretty good. Does look pretty good. All right. A lot to like about this guy. All right. Well, let's, uh, shall we move on? Yeah. All right. Category seven, over under. In this category, we look at the life expectancy for the year somebody was born to see if they beat the house odds and to look for signs of graceful aging. So the life expectancy for a man born in the United States in 1933 was 61.7 years old. Fred lived to 86, so about 25 years over and very graceful aging.
0: Yeah, right. Working up until the end, but even physically, looking pretty good. Consistent physique. Yeah, and the smile. I mean, no deterioration in the smile. I think that is like that. That is a hell of an indicator. Um, So yeah, with a ton of grace and doing these like these things towards the end of his career. This Modern Family, playing Phil Dunphy's father. You know, those were in his final years.
3: Well, look, it's Pretty Boy Dunphy. Looking good (laughs) yourself, pops.
2: How uh, are you doing?
3: I got my rings, got my vows. Now all I need is a way to escape. Please, (laughs) someone help. (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. Actually, I'm really looking forward to being married.
1: Maybe this belongs in a different category, but I do feel like he's somebody who is not just able to be slot into just about any comedy of any flavor anywhere, whether it's The Simpsons or Christopher Guest or Modern Family or Everybody Loves Raymond. Like, everybody can find a use for him. I also think that there is a way of approaching comedy that he exemplifies that affects people like Phil Dunphy, or what's his name, Ty, uh, what's Ty Burrell. On Modern Family, as well as Will Ferrell. I mean, I think Will Ferrell is actually that, that, that sort of consummate American, genial American blowhard. That—that That is such a kind of like comedic archetype and a really useful one. And he nails that about as well as anybody, you know, that just like I'm, I'm supposed to say stuff as a genial, you know, white man in this situation because uh, society expects me to just start talking whether I know what the heck I'm talking about or not.
0: Yeah. He embodies it perfectly. And he said that too. He, he, he used to have this quote saying, uh, if you don't have anything to say, just say something. And that was like a philosophy in life as well as like, I think, in his work, in the improv. If <laughs> you
1: don't have anything to say, just say something. That's, I mean, you know what? But here's the other thing I love about it. And I think it speaks to grace. It kept him funny into old age. Yes. Like Sometimes age, you know, robs you of your ability to make people laugh. You know, And maybe it is because, to Saul's point, we sort of valorize youth and, you know Western culture, I like that there's this man who becomes funny at a pretty young age I mean he is doing comedy work in the 60s and 70s but it stays funny the whole time. I want that too right I never want in as much as I aspire to have a good sense of humor. I sure as hell hope like that sticks with me in, in, to age 86 yeah. It's not just graceful, but the humor itself is graceful.
0: The relevancy.
1: Yeah. I think that's my point. All right. Wow, a lot of high marks here. Yeah. Looking pretty good so far. Looking pretty good for 2010. Yeah, we'll get to it. All right. Let's take another break. Okay, category eight. This is where we get to the more introspective questions and where we start to take our best guess at what we think it would have been like to have been this person. First of these categories, man in the mirror. What did they think about their own reflection? I didn't have a lot to say here, Amit. I said seems confident, but you are really good at this category. So what are you thinking? Yeah, I
0: think you're looking for me to say something else. But, you know, we we know him largely in older age. He was yeah. often described as like the handsome foil in things like Farnwood Tonight and everything around that era. He, yeah. he was a, a good looking man. Yeah, I think that I think what that does is that allows him to maintain that equanimity and and confidence in this dry humor. So good,
1: I, good looking, I, I, not great looking. I mean, I'm not to say he's like bad looking, but he's like he's he's good looking. Yeah, but he's not, six like, let's or not whatever. You. Right, six or seven. That's what I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, and
0: he was athletic. You alluded to you know playing baseball for the army. Yeah, um,
1: he wanted to be a baseball so, player. Yeah,
0: yeah. So he's he he had confidence, and I think that was just enough. I think he liked yeah. it. I think the man smiled authentically. Yeah. All the time, and I think he was grateful for how he looked. I don't think he aspired for much more. So yeah, my my, my short answer is yes. He yes. likes his
1: reflection in the mirror. Okay, mine as well. Category nine, outgoing message. Like man in the mirror, how do we think they felt about the sound of their own voice when they heard it on an answering machine or outgoing voicemail? Also, would they have had the humility to record it themselves, or would they use the default setting?
0: This seems painfully obvious to me
1: that he liked it.
0: Yeah. The man loved talking. Right? Like improv was his his jam. And he even talked about, you know, doing the the Leno skits and the Kimmel skits like there's not rehearsals, there's one take. And he also said that's what he liked about The Bold and the Beautiful is that uh, like, you know, it's a day it's a day to shoot. he just he likes throwing it out there.
1: You know, we haven't referenced yet, and maybe it's too annoying of a reference, but the whole, what happened? thing <laughs> on Mighty Wind.
3: As you know, back in 1970, I start on a series called, What Happened? And every time something would go wrong, I would look at the camera and say, hey, what happened?
1: Those may be his most famous words. I bring it up here because if I were to ever call Fred Willard and, and get his voicemail, it's a non sequitur, but I kind of want to hear that. On his voicemail, <laughs> I'm just. Saying. And I
0: don't, I don't think he would have been above putting it. Not at all. He was all, one of those people right? that like didn't mind rehashing the role.
1: Yeah, like if you're wondering what happened, yeah. <laughs> God, it's. I watched that a lot in the lead up to Any it. Any of these <laughs>
0: tribute clips that you watch on
1: him, they always had that scene by my was mind. So or good. The, those <laughs> scenes. <laughs> all right, rocking through. I guess category ten, control Z. This is where we look for the big do-overs, the things you might have done differently. All right, we already mentioned the public theater uh, in 2010. Yes. The one I had other than that was that he turned down the role that was played by Robert Hayes in Airplane. Yes. Ah, that was mine. It's the only time I saw him offered a leading man role. So he got the script, took a look, and said, "Ah, I'm not really seeing it, and he turns it down. And then a year later, he's talking with somebody who's like, have you seen the the." airplane it's the hit of the summer and he's like oh my god had i missed that role and he went and watched it and he it's an interesting casting what if how he would have done i mean this is the main role basically robert hayes is the pilot who you know saves the day in airplane what do you think is that should that have been fred willard or what would it have been like had fred willard played that part
0: would it have changed the rest of his life or just the movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, so
0: so I actually have the perfect answer for this. So he told his wife that, you know, after the movie became a success, he was like, "Oh darn it, I should have done that movie." And what she said to him is, "If you did it, it might not have been that good." I saw that and I think that is the most beautifully succinct way to think about regrets. Yeah. You can say, "Oh, I would have been in this movie and it would have gone like this. I missed out on" this leading role and these millions of dollars and this fame and fortune had me. No, that is crystal ball looking. You cannot place yourself in somebody else's role or in a choice you didn't take because you're making lots and lots of assumptions of what would have happened afterwards.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It also does speak to the quality of the marriage in a way. I mean, she is, as you said earlier, described as this loving, supporting woman, you know, who's really championing his career and creating community, you know, with other comedic talents in Hollywood. And she says to him, might not have been as good if you did it. Like, that's the kind of brutal honesty you want to hear in a marriage, like yeah. it or not. That's part of what you ask for in a spouse is somebody who lifts you up and takes you down at just the right levels and just the right moments
0: yeah and and I think this is a perfect way to look at just regrets in general, yeah. It's like what Nora Ephron said about, like, if I would have had larger breasts. And right. she was like, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, I wish I had larger breasts, but if I did, I could've been a completely different person,
1: yeah. and i and I am who I was supposed to be. And maybe better off not having been in the movie airplane.
3: Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely, you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley.
1: Second to last category, cocktail, coffee, cannabis. This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? This may be a question of what drug sounds like the most fun to partake with this person, or another philosophy is that a particular kind of drug might allow access to a part that we are most curious about. I've got an answer, but I'm not confident in it.
0: So I'll go. Normally I go for the intoxicants. Uh, With Fred Willard, I'm going coffee. I don't think I've seen anybody through all of our episodes as content as Fred Willard is. Just throughout his life, in all the roles he did, all the interviews he gave, all the just offhand remarks, he just seems consistently content. Not over the moon, pumping his fists in the air, not the opposite, like showing despair. This goes back to the equanimity that he has in the role. This guy embodies contentment for me. And I don't know if that comes from a wisdom that he may have inside. Maybe he does have these magic words to live by that he can say over coffee, or maybe you just observe and emanate it. And that's what I saw most in Fred Willard that I want to gain from.
1: This has kind of been a question for me about him is, is he reserved in a kind of Greatest generation, I guess they sometimes call it, kind of way. Is he from a generation that has different boundaries around what emotions you do and do not show in any given moment? There are some things about his life that look a little cookie cutter, and not a bad way. You know what I mean? I agree. There does seem to be a contented energy about him, but I'm also not 100% convinced I'm seeing the entire raw emotional truth of the man. Not that I'm supposed to, but I hear content and I hear you describe it. And I think he's got some sort of inner peace that I'm not as sure of, you know, I feel like there's, there's something, there's still some things I don't know about him. I don't know that I need to know him. I don't know if I'm curious about him, but I do feel like there, there is a, um, I don't know, there is a wall there somewhere pretty deep down, but a wall that you don't get beyond if you really got to know the man. Yeah, we have an inherent suspicion about that. That came
0: up with Betty White a lot. There was a lot of people that didn't believe her eminence. There has to be something false to it. There has to be masking for something. And, you know, certain people on the very, very inside may know they may not. This is a completely, you know, inner feeling. And the best we can do on our gut instinct is know how believable it is. And to me... For Fred Willard, it's believable.
1: Let me ask you this question. What of our three options here do you think most lends itself to improv? Cocktail. Yeah, that's where I went too. So I had cocktail for that reason. I want to laugh at this guy, but I actually want to like
0: You want to play ball with him?
1: I, yeah, I want to perform. And I don't even need an audience. I don't need to be on stage. I mean, I, I think it would be fun to do improv with Fred Willard. And to like See how far you could go without totally cracking up, because I'm sure he would take it to absolutely absurd places. And I think cocktail, yes, but it would need to be something pretty light. So maybe, you know, maybe a nice cold light beer just to sort of like get a little silly, but not too much.
0: Yeah. Loosen the tongue a little bit.
1: Totally. I want to like learn from Fred Willard. However crappy I am at it, I would love to give it a shot just because I think it'd be fun as hell.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. And it would be fun as hell. Uh, can I watch?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But uh, but we're not publishing it. All right, Ahmed. This came up fast. We've arrived. The Vanderbeek. Named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. Fred Willard, what do you think?
0: Case against?
1: Yeah, That's where I'm at. How is this not an obvious yes? I wouldn't want to be caught in a porn theater in my late 70s, but I'm a comedic actor. I can laugh it off, and everybody else seems to have laughed it off, and who gives a shit? I don't know. At the end of the day, I feel like you can still live with yourself. That's the one mark I saw against him. Five million's a little low, so maybe he's a bit exhausted, but, man, he looks like he's having fun, looks to be a good marriage, looks to be a worthwhile life pursuit, have a sort of hidden contribution you asked exactly the right question here. What is the case against? Do you have thoughts on that?
0: I think range of emotion, range of character. Um, you know, it's it's solid. It's all it's all good. It's so good, you know. But he he does play this same version of every character, which seems to be a version of at least the best public version of himself that we can see. Uh, like you said, you have a suspicion about is is there something behind the curtains that we can't detect? The only way to know that without being completely inside his head is a gut instinct, but the fact if you live to eighty six, you can rest assured that there's probably not a whole lot of turmoil going on inside your head. Uh, but I do wonder about range and and evolution. His comedy stayed relevant. His roles, he fit just as well into the Smothers Brothers in the 60s as he did Anchorman and Modern Family
1: in the 2000s. Is that something that you would want, though? That's an interesting question. I mean, one of the things I came out of the gate really, you know, bullish about with him is this hope and faith that it's going to work out. And maybe we didn't explore that enough. There's an element of... His dreams were fulfilled in that he he built a long career and was a working actor so he was able to do it. So it had a sort of, you know, economic stability to it, but did it also have an inner validation? If this is a calling, which it sort of looks like it might be, comedy or comedic acting. You know, did he meet his potential? Did he fulfill his, you know, complete expression in terms of what was possible given his talents? To your point, he's in a kind of narrow range in what he's doing in those things. So was there something left on the table, right? Was there something that he could have done? And it's interesting because you drew attention to Bold and Beautiful. That kind of hints that maybe he had that thought too, why else go on a soap opera other than, yeah, I never did get to flex that muscle exactly. I, I, I see that. I do. I don't. I think it's a good answer to the question of case against, but it feels like a reach to me. And I'm going to just go ahead and call it for me. I'm a yes. I want your life, Fred Willard. This looks like a really fun life. And there's just too much here that's like clearly desirable to me.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm there with you. Right. You know, I, I say lack of range and I and I do mean that and I am curious about that, and that is a hesitation. But if you look at least at range within what he did, there is no wider range that you can find, uh, through the the course of his entire career. So yeah, I, I'm suspicious on the range of character, the range of emotion, uh, but I'm I'm gonna rest on contentment. This looks like a validated public life. You made a lot of people laugh, didn't seem to have any adversaries, and were content. So, yes, I want your life, Fred Willard.
1: I need more people like this in my life where, like, if they show up on my screen, I am just automatically in a better mood. Um, Yeah. That's a real gift, you know, and that's a real uh, that's that's a real thing to aspire to. I know that I want to have that from the inside out. Maybe that's the big lesson here.
0: Yeah.
1: Amit, you are Fred Willard. You have died and you have uh, ascended to the pearly gates where you meet St. Peter and you have an opportunity to make your pitch. What is your contribution to the stream of life?
0: St. Peter, I am going to tell you how to be funny. The answer is don't force it. Don't force funny. Don't act funny. Just let things come out. Do you know how to be great? Don't force it. Just keep going and keep doing it. And your greatness and your funniness will come out. And the more you do it, and the more you believe in yourself, the more you can make the entire world laugh Their pants off. Am I dead? What happened? Let me in.
1: Thanks again to Saul Austerlitz for joining us on this episode of Famous and Gravy. Saul's new book is called Kind of a Big Deal How Anchorman Stayed Classy and Became the Most Iconic Comedy of the 21st Century. We'll link to it in the show notes. Famous and Gravy listeners, if you're interested in participating in our opening quiz where we reveal the dead celebrity, please send us an email. You can reach us at hello at famousandgravy.com. And if you're enjoying our show, please tell your friends. You can find us on Twitter. We're also on threads and our handle is at famousandgravy. We have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, famousandgravy.com. Famous Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. Thank you so much again for listening. Stay classy. See you next time.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football